I invite you to turn with me to John's Gospel, Fourth Gospel, Chapter One. Each of the Gospels is inspired by the Father and gives us one facet of the marvelous character of Christ. And then the youngest of the disciples, the one who sat closest to Jesus and often leaned his head on his shoulder, comes in his later years to write the Gospel of John. John chapter one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about that light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. And yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Sometime back, I uh, was engaged in a, an interesting conversation with a young lady in her early 20s. Uh, her name was Corinne. Corinne has never been to our church, so it's none of our Corinne's. Uh, and actually, I met Corinne because she approached me and wanted me to sign a petition A petition with which I could not agree, so I declined to sign it. But I sought to engage her in conversation. I was interested in her story and how I might be used of God to connect her story to the great story that we will be celebrating in just a few moments. You know, sometimes if you give the, the, the gift of listening and of interest to someone, the story, and it comes forward. And so I did get to uh, listen to Corinne a little bit and hear her story. She was, uh, is a lot like many 20-somethings. Her parents are divorced. So she is managing multiple relationships, dealing with complex emotions. Um. We probed a little further and found out that her religious background is extremely mixed. And in her own words, Corinne speaks of many of the Christians she knows, which she she observed that they are so sure of so many things, but their lives do not reflect it. Her words, her perception. And she'd been to a few worship experiences in her time and had found them basically to be spiritually lifeless. Again, her perspective. 
But in spite of all this negativity about the great story, Corinne finds herself continually around the edges of trying to figure out where she is with God and where God is with her. Perhaps, I said to Corinne, you are hearing the echoes of a voice. You see, Corinne is, uh, I'm convinced, thirsty for God. Are you thirsty for God? Jesus made a wonderful promise that if anyone would believe on him, that life would well up in him and, and spring forward in a, in, a, in a supply of fresh living water that never runs dry. Have you partaken of the water of life? And does Christ bubble up from within you? And who around you is thirsty for God? I am convinced that deep within the subterranean chambers of every human soul lies a hunger and a thirst for God. Sometimes someone gets still enough or desperate enough to listen to that voice. Oftentimes, like Elijah at the mouth of the mountain cave, the tumultuous clamor of all that's going on at the surface of our lives drowns out the whisper of the Almighty. But there are within us echoes of that voice. And uh, it is just such that it is constantly manifesting itself in various ways in the life of every human being. For example, we all have this insatiable, incurable urge to worship. Everybody worships something. We can worship prestige, power, pleasure, products, profitability, popularity. Marilyn and I lived in Wisconsin for a few years. Some people even worship the Packers. <coughs> and many of us worship ourselves. But that insatiable desire for worship is a reflection of a hunger for the one true God who alone is worthy of our worship. Another way this bubbles forth in every human life, I think, is that we inevitably and invariably, at a very young age, began to paint a mental portrait of God. Even though we may say we do not believe in it. So what is your picture of God? Left to ourselves, usually, we come up with uh, falling off the edges of one of two extremes. Some of us have a, have a distortion of the, of the God most high. The uppercase God who, who is big and dark and mysterious and dwells in the nether regions of the universe and, 
and uh, created the cosmos, but has returned to the nether regions to let it all run down on its own. The unapproachable, unapproaching God, the unknowable, unknown God. Others of us fall off the edges of other another distortion of the most nigh God, the lowercase God. Who, as we visualize and, and, and fantasize about him, is very approachable, but he is so miniaturized and trivialized that he's a little bit none better, really, than a spiritual Santa Claus or a cosmic bellhop or a celestial slot machine. He is very approachable. In fact, he's in our hip pocket. But he has been demystified and domesticated to the point that there is none of the transcendence of the one true God. And he can offer a little more than sentiment and platitudes to us. But all of these are whispers of the thirst and hunger for the one true God who put that hunger in us that we might come to know him. So how do we? How do we find this God we long for? Well, we don't. We can't. God must find us. There must be a great divine intervention into our lives. Enter Jesus. Enter the words we read a few moments ago. John chapter 1, for example, verses 1 through 5. The beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were created by God. He always has been. This is the one true expression of the God Most High. In all His magnificence and His majesty, He is revealed to us in Jesus. And then we come to John 1.14, that amazing verse. This magnificent Word became flesh. Dwelt among us. We, and even as the most nigh God, he is still the most high God. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and full of truth. The God most high has drawn nigh in the person of Jesus Christ. He has found us. And surely we would open our arms and embrace him. But we don't. Because Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, reminds us all we like stubborn, stupid sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to his own way. You see, our problem is sin. Now, there are sins. Our individual acts of transgression and rebellion that separate us from God. But then there is the sin beneath the sins. That basic heart attitude that says, I will be the God of my own life. And we have a lifelong struggle with, with our wills and the will of God. And by moment by moment, we fail to follow the lordship of the master. And our sin separates us from God. We are estranged, not only estranged, we are alienated from God. Not because he hates us, but because we 
defy him and deify ourselves. And the result of all that self preoccupation is that we, in the most profound of ways, are lost. And we come to John 1.29, where the disciple continues to write, and he refers back to John the Baptist, who came to speak of Christ. And the crowds see Jesus, and John introduces the crowds to Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. What a strange word picture. What an unusual introduction. The Lamb of God, referring back to the Hebrew Scriptures, where because of our sin, a spotless lamb had to be slain that our sins could be forgiven. And representatively, this was done every year through the centuries. It had to be repeated constantly because of our continuous sin. And then comes Christ... Once for all, he offers himself as the one spotless lamb, a supreme sacrifice for our sins. And so Jesus comes in the flesh. He calls his disciples to himself and he relentlessly marches toward the cross. And along the way, one of his own betrays him. The others forsake him. The religious leaders of the religious tradition that prophesied him. Reject him. The civil government crucifies him and the crowd gathers around him and cries out for his execution. And right about this moment, the righteous indignation in all of us wants to rise up in protest, conveniently forgetting that our faces are represented in that crowd. And we just want to visualize a Jesus who will come off that cross and say, all right, I've had enough. Beam me up, Father, back to the throne of glory where I'm not only appreciated, but I'm worshipped. Still better, our righteous indignation imagines a Jesus who suddenly has fire in his eyes. And he says, no more Mr. Nice Guy. And he just nukes the whole sorry, ungrateful bunch. Forgetting again that our faces... Are in that crowd. But he doesn't either. He stays on the cross, endures the humiliation, takes our sins upon himself to the point that he cries out, Father, why have you forsaken me? And then he says, It is finished. He bows his head and dies. And why did he stay there? One reason, and it's captured in a magnificent little verse. Two chapters over in John, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever has not the son has not life. Have you come to the point where you have read John 3.16 in the appreciation for the fact that God so loved the world that whoever believes on him has life to say, God, love me. To the point that if I would believe on him, I will not perish, but I have everlasting life. Thanks be to God for his incredible gift.
And that is a gift we celebrate in the Lord's Supper this morning. Jesus forecast the night before he went to the cross that it was coming. But he also looked beyond the cross through his resurrection to the future. All the way down through the centuries to this very day, 2,000 years later, to say, if you have embraced me, if you've received the gift of life that I offer in incredible sacrificial love to you, as often as you partake of communion, do so in remembrance of me. This is the great story that changes and informs and enriches all other stories, including the individual story of your life. And we come this morning to celebrate with gratitude that incredible gift of the life through Christ because of the love of God. So I'm going to ask those who are going to help us do so this morning to come forward. And as we prepare for communion, just a word. You may be asking, do I participate in communion? Well, there are two things for you to consider this morning. First of all, have you embraced the Savior? Have you invited Christ into your life? You've opened up your life like a flower to receive the sunshine and the rain and receive the gift of salvation by receiving Christ. Secondly, do you partake of communion as an act of thanksgiving, worship, celebration? If so, you are invited to take communion with us. But we all are going to pause for a second and follow the direction of Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, where he says in verse 23, examine your heart. For a moment, do a fearless and searching spiritual inventory of your heart. Let God shine the searchlight of his word into you. And if he points something out, confess it to him right now, because we have that wonderful truth as believers that if you sin, confess it and it's instantly forgiven. If there is a sin that needs to be made right in terms of a broken relationship with someone, confess that to God and and commit to him that at the very first opportunity, you will seek to make that right. So here's an opportunity to let God do a quick scan of our hearts and reveal to us where we need to receive, repent and receive his gift of forgiveness. Let's take a moment in silent prayer to let God do business with us. Father, in a moment like this, we are truly aware of how much we matter to you. That we are inherently valuable because we're created in your image. And we're truly aware that we are valuable but sinful. And we desperately need your grace. And Father, we are truly grateful that you have poured grace all over our lives. We give you thanks. We respond to your activity within our hearts. And we now partake communion as an act of celebration and gratitude and worship. 
to the name which is above every name, the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As uh, you are served the bread, first of all, uh, let's all hold it until we've received it and, and our servers come back to the front and they will partake together. Jesus told the disciples that night before he went to the cross, this is my body. It symbolizes my body, which is for you. Which is for you. As often as you partake, do so in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup. Again, we'll hold the cup until we all can partake of it together. say that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. That's the cost of our sin. And it has to be the blood of the sinless one. The Savior. The Son of God. Lord of my life, I crown you now. Thine shall the glory be. Lest I forget your thorn-crowned brow. Lead me to Calvary. Lest I forget Gethsemane. Lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love for me, lead me to Calvary. Jesus says this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood shed for your sins as oft as you partake. Do so in remembrance of me. Now, the very scripture in first Corinthians, where Paul called us to do a fearless and searching searching inventory of our lives. In verse 26, he says this, for as oft as you eat this bread, drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So as we partook of communion this morning, we stood in the great parenthesis between the first coming of Jesus to a cross to make possible our salvation through his sacrificial death and the second coming of Jesus, when the one who came as a lamb will come as a lion, the one who was born in a manger will reign on a throne. Satan and his minions will be cast into hell forever. We will all be judged on the basis of what we did with Christ. We will be received into his and welcomed into his presence. There will be relationships like we've never known relationships. There will be worship like we've never known worship. There will be meaningful service and work like we've never known worshipful work. When the battle is over and we shall wear a crown. So how do we live in the great parenthesis, the time between the times of the first and second coming of Christ? This is July 4th. We celebrate the political freedoms we know 
which have been purchased and are to this day being purchased at a very high price. Sixty seven years ago, on the 6th of June, 1944, one of the most epic and costly of battles to preserve our freedoms was fought. And perhaps it can tell us something about how we live in the time between the times. It was the Second World War. And Europe had been at war throughout the decade of the 40s and before. America had been drawn into the war for, at this point, three exhausting, costly years. And as the assault against Germany was attempting to be turned to the offensive, the Allied command was divided in how to proceed toward the streets of Berlin to overwhelm the Nazi juggernaut. Winston Churchill, British prime minister, favored an an offensive that went northward through Italy. And for a time he prevailed. But the American high command had always been in favor of a direct assault through France, which was Nazi occupied. And finally they had their way. And so in June of 1944, Operation Overlord was launched. The plan was a massive concentration of Allied troops at the beaches of Normandy to overwhelm the Nazis and march through France to Berlin. On that particular fateful day, with weather very iffy and chancy, early in the morning, 4,000 ships hit the beaches of Normandy, carrying across the English Channel the Allied troops. They were being supported and backed up by 80 battleships with 800 big guns and 11,000 planes in the air. Can you imagine that? All seeking to soften up the Nazi defenses in this surprise assault. A lot of the softening up missed its mark. And it was a brutal and bloody landing, which the first 20 minutes of saving Private Ryan have given us all a chilling sense of just how brutal and bloody it was. But when the day was over, that longest of days, one million Allied troops were preparing to cover French soil. And for all intents and purposes, D-Day, the 6th of June, 1944, when accomplished, effectively determined the outcome of the war. Ultimately, if the Allies would persevere, Germany would be defeated. But there was a long time between June of 1944, D-Day, and May 8th of 1945, V-E Day, when victory would be formally accomplished. And a lot of bitter fighting had to happen, including the winter of 1944 when U.S. troops were caught in the Battle of the Bulge and we had 77,000 casualties en route to the march to Bastogne. There was still a high price to be paid. But D-Day assured the ultimate outcome of VE Day one year later. Now, if you can imagine for a moment that D-Day represents the first coming of Jesus Christ. Calvary was Christ's death day. It was our destiny day. 
It's when Jesus launched an all-out assault on our greatest enemy, sin, death, and Satan. And the cross was a victory for Jesus, and consequently, it was a victory for us. When he cried, it is finished, he wasn't saying the jig is up. It's over. The word in the Greek is tetelestai, and teleos is the word in Greek for purpose. And Jesus was saying, mission accomplished. God's purpose has been fulfilled. And then he proved it by rising up from the grave. But there's still a battle to be fought. There are still challenges to be endured as Satan is a mortally wounded enemy who has yet to surrender. And he's, he goes like a wounded bull crashing through this world, wreaking havoc where he can. And we still have character to be formed. We still have God's glory to be reflected and extended. We still need to seek to depopulate hell and populate heaven to introduce as many people as we can to the great liberator. But we do know with a certainty that Christ shall return and the battle will be over and we shall wear a crown. So how do we live in the time between the times? The great parenthesis. First of all, we live with hope. God is in control. He is working out his purposes and Jesus is coming again. And secondly, as we live with hope, we live on purpose. We have a purpose for our lives, and that is to be on mission for our king, pushing back the kingdom of darkness. That Jesus may be king in this world as he is in heaven. So this morning. As we come to the conclusion of communion, of service that celebrates communion, will you? Will you, first of all, hunger and thirst after Christ? How thirsty are you this morning for Christ? If this morning you are here by God's appointment and you have yet to embrace the Savior and give your life to him, it is clear why you are here today. This is your God opportunity to say yes to Christ and to open up your life and embrace the Savior. And I encourage you, seize the opportunity. And this morning, if you have received Christ, I still ask the question, are you thirsty? Are you hungry after him? And when you thirst after God, he fills that thirst. This morning, will you live in hope? If each day you can rise and remind yourself that God is in control, that Jesus is coming again, then that can change everything about how you approach your day. And lastly, will you live on purpose? Will you understand that God has you here for a reason? And he has placed thirsty people all around you. And as you seek to abide in him, And walk in in an open and obedient love relationship with him. He will somehow use your life to stir something of that thirst that is in a soul who is in proximity to you. Just be available. Will you? We're going to worship through the act of giving this morning. 
and we will have those who will come and take the offering. But it's also a wonderful opportunity to drop those connection cards in the offering bag. And before you do, to write on that card your next step commitment to Christ. Your request for information or prayer. But use this time wisely and well. I'm going to pray. And then this is your opportunity to respond to how God has spoken you uh, to you through worship in the word today. Father, we are privileged to worship here today in the freedoms that we have in this country and in the freedom that is offered in Christ. Father, all of us need to cry out to you about areas of our life where we may still be tempted to live in bondage. May we look up, may we thirst for you, and may we surrender to you and allow you to set us truly free. And Father, this morning, keep fresh in our minds your incredible gift, just how much you love us. In Jesus' name we pray, praying that he will be glorified in our decisions now as we use those connections cards wisely and well. Amen.